I'm very thankful for where the Lord has us in our study of Ephesians chapter 1. What we began back in late January. We have made our way all the way over to verse 19. Where we are told here by Paul through his prayer. That we as believers can know even as he prays that we would know. The exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So if you have your Bible open to Ephesians 1, I want to go back up to verse 15 and read all the way down through the end of the chapter. But just know we're going to give attention to verses 19, 20, and part of verse 21 this morning. Paul says, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. This is what he prays. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Don't you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you this morning. I pray you would answer these prayers even as we sit here this morning, that you would indeed give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of your Son, that you would open the spiritual eyes of our understanding, that we may know the hope of your calling, the glory of the inheritance of the saints, and the great power toward us who believe. We ask it for Christ's sake. We ask it based on the merits of his name. Amen. So let me ask you a question here at the beginning. What do you know in your life of the power of God? If the Lord was to remove the Spirit from your life, If he was to take his power away from you, would you know it? Is your life so bound up in the things of the world, the pleasures of the world, the pursuit of the world, and even the power that comes from all of those things, that we would even recognize if the Lord were to withdraw himself from us? Now, thankfully for a believer, we know the Lord's never going to do that. He's never going to take himself away from us. But it's helpful, I suppose, to think about that scenario. Would we even realize, is there anything in our lives that we do that is done 
in dependence upon the power of God and the help of the Spirit of God. Well, that's often the way that we think about the power of God expressed in our lives. What does he help me do? What things can I do with the help of God that I cannot do in the strength of my flesh? But that's not what Paul is talking about here in this first chapter. That's a real idea and it's a real thought and it's something that we could turn to another passage of scripture and study how we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us with his help, with his energy, with the strength that he supplies to our weakness as he comes alongside of us and helps us and aids us. We can be more evangelistic, we can be more zealous, we can be more filled with hope, we can be more useful, we can be all kinds of things with his help. That's not what Paul is talking about here. What Paul is saying here about the power of God is basically this. You would still be dead in your sins if the exceeding greatness of the power of God had not been channeled and funneled into your life. Think of those great verses that we looked at in, in the first half of this chapter. And no doubt at some time in your life, either on large scale or small scale, you've used a funnel and you've seen how things swirl around until they reach the bottom. Well, chapter 1 begins with Paul pouring all of these great doctrines into this funnel. And they begin to swirl around. Things like predestination and election and sovereignty and foreknowledge. And as he keeps pouring, then come into the mix the shed blood of Jesus Christ by whom we have redemption through the shedding of his blood. And as he keeps pouring all of these things in and they spin around, we get down to verse 13 where we're told that it is the Spirit of God who comes and makes application of all of these things and seals us, guarantees our inheritance to the praise of his glory. Three times over we read that phrase in those first 14 verses. And so now as we get to the second half of verse 15, we're still staring down into that funnel and all of these things have been mixed together. Now they're working their way out. They're coming out the bottom, as it were. And Paul is telling us, as you are standing there observing the funnel of the grace of God, as you are peering down into it, and all of it results in the bottom, your conversion, your salvation. As you watch those things flow through the funnel, these are the very things that I'm praying that the Lord would show you as you observe what He has done. If the first 14 verses represent the mind and heart of God, then the last half of the chapter represents the things that Paul prays that the Lord would make us know unequivocally, that we would know through real experience. We've already looked at the first three things that Paul prayed that we would know. The hope of his calling. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And now we come to the third would you look at it in your Bible with me in verse 19? The exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. You know, Paul is very concerned with what Christians know. That's a reflection of the Spirit of God 
inspiring him to write. How often do we read words where Paul says, I want you to know, I want you to know this, I want you to know this. And sometimes Paul even makes it even more blatant and plain when he says, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want your minds to be full. But he also wants our heart to be full. The Christian life lived in all of its glory is lived with a head full of knowledge and a heart full of love. Sometimes we live with one or the other. Sometimes our heads are full of knowledge and our hearts are empty, or our hearts may be overflowing, but our heads may be empty. The thing that we should pray for is both the intellectual knowledge, but also the experiential knowledge. We should pray that the Lord would so enlighten us, give us spiritual eyes of understanding so that we could comprehend what we read and we can talk with some semblance of real understanding of what the Lord has done. But that that would be matched by a heart of love for Christ. And when those two things are together, when your head is full of the knowledge of Christ, and when your heart is full of love to Christ and then receiving love from Christ, you're living in heaven on earth. Everything in the world tries to take that away from you, though, doesn't it? The world assaults your mind, wants to drag away the things that you know about Christ. The world assaults your heart, draws you after its enticements. And here we find ourselves in the battle of the ages, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So this third thing that Paul is praying and asking that the Lord, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glories would give is that we as Christians would really and experientially know something of the exceeding greatness of his power. Three words. Exceeding, greatness, and power. These three words are straining to convey some type of great meaning. Paul, who had the Spirit of God inspiring him, we call Paul a wordsmith, right? He, he, he wrote the Scriptures to us, inspired by God. He was a man with a very high intellect, but sometimes even he begins to strain for words of how to describe what God has done for us in Christ. And this is one of those examples. He doesn't say the exceeding power, the great power. He doesn't just say power. He doesn't say greatness. He doesn't say the exceeding way. He puts all of those things together and he says the exceeding greatness of his power. I like what John Calvin said about this when you think about these words. Exceeding greatness of his power. The first is the root. The second is the tree. And the third is the fruit that comes off of this tree. Others have tried to explain it in this way. The first, the exceeding word, is God's word for all omnipotence. His all-powerful nature. 
the second being his ability, and then the third being his willingness to put these things in operation in your life. And when you take them all three together, and when we try to understand the, the way that God has worked in our life, then indeed Paul has it right. It is exceeding, it is great, and it is powerful. But as I've already tried to say, Paul is not here desiring that we would more fully observe and be convinced of his power through natural creation. His goal and his end is much more specific than that, and it's spiritual. It's right and true. We read it in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory and certainly the power of God. That's part of declaring the glory of God is to declare his power. But here the context is greater than that. The context is the resurrection of Christ declares the exceeding greatness of his power. The thought would be something like this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the Father's greatest display of power. Have you ever thought of it that way? Perhaps we, are, we tend to think the mountains, the oceans, our bodies, something else that God has created. And indeed, the scriptures present to us that God's might, His omnipotence, His omniscience, His wisdom, all of these things are on display in creation but what would you point to if someone were to ask you, what was the greatest display of God's power? Well, we would have to point to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And can I show you the, the marvelous, miraculous, astonishing thing? The greatest display, the exceeding greatness of God's power is not only displayed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it's displayed in your conversion. That's what Paul says here in verse 19. He says, I want you to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward who? Toward those who believe. And then he gives this, this great astounding illustration and he uses this word that's familiar to him. It's according to this. It's on par with this. It's equal to this. It matches up perfectly with this. When you think of the one, think of the other as being the exact replica of this. The one being Christ's resurrection from the dead. The other being your spiritual resurrection from the dead. I realize it's almost we almost tend towards thinking that this might be in some way or another heretical to equate my conversion with the resurrection of Christ. But let's put all of those thoughts to rest because these aren't my thoughts, these aren't yours. These are what the Spirit makes known to us. The Lord has, in an exceeding great and powerful way, worked in us when He raised us from the dead. Surely this teaches us something about the strength of sin and its destruction. This is what it took. 
This is what it took. The greatest display of God's power is what it took to get you into the kingdom. Isn't that amazing? The greatest display of God's power is what it took to bring you to Christ. Can we skip down for a moment down to verse 1 of chapter 2? And you he made alive. Most of our Bibles, most translations, the words he made alive are in italics. And when you see that, you know that those aren't in the original language. That's, those are words that have been supplied by the translators of the scriptures to make the verse read well in English. What grounds then did the translators of scripture have to add these words, he made alive? Very often when we study this part of Ephesians, we run straight to chapter 2. And we, we miss, when we do that, the context in which it's found. And that is, he made Christ alive, he made you alive. Christ was dead because of sin, he made him alive. You were dead in sin, and he made you alive. The power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that raised you from the dead. The power operative in Christ breaking the bars of the grave and making his way out is the same power that has brought you and me to life. Surely this not only speaks to the power of sin, death and hell and the grave, but it speaks to the greatness of the mercy of God in pointing this power at me and at you. I wasn't really able to sing the last two or three hymns this morning because my heart captured in on this one phrase that we sing. Sinners whose love remembers the wormwood and the gall Come, cast your trophies at his feet. I've sang that hundreds of times probably. Sinners whose love cannot forget the wormwood and the gall, come lay your trophies at his feet and crown him Lord of all. What Paul is telling us here is that it took the exceeding great power of God to get us out of the wormwood and the gall and to give us a trophy to come and lay at the, at the feet of Jesus. Conversion is miraculous. We live in a day where people want to see the miraculous thing. They want to see the, the spiritual miracle performed. You see the sham of religion as I see it, where there are people coming to the front and wanting to receive some type of healing. They come on crutches and they leave walking out, supposedly. They come in a wheelchair and they leave walking out. And all of this is to validate the power of God operative in the world today. Do you know that there's something far greater than that? And it is sitting on the pew next to you, most likely. An evidence of God's miracle-working power 
And if there's not someone sitting on the pew next to you, if you yourself have come to faith in Christ, then you are a miracle in and of yourself because Christ has raised you from the dead. We think far too little very often of the greatness of salvation. I gave you these words from Charles Hodge last week and I remind you of them now. Salvation is not a moral reformation. Salvation is not just doing better. Salvation is not cleaning yourself up and giving off a better presentation of yourself, cleaning up the language that comes out of your mouth, cleaning up the thoughts that run through your mind, cleaning up your outward dress. That is not what salvation is. It's not moral reformation. It's spiritual resurrection. It's being brought from death to life. Charles Hodge also said salvation is not something we produce by mental assent to facts about Jesus' life. The mental assent to facts is necessary. We're given facts in Scripture concerning the resurrection of Christ, the life of Christ, the birth, the crucifixion, all of these great details. We need certainly to believe them. We need to fill our minds with these facts. But salvation is more than assent to facts about Jesus. Salvation is receiving a new heart. Salvation is the Lord reaching down into your life by the exceeding greatness of His power and breathing the life of the Spirit into your dead spiritual being. Salvation is the new birth. Salvation is being born again. The Holy Spirit of God must move upon us and create us anew or we will not be saved. Let's go back to verse 19 and look at this correlation that Paul makes again. That you may know what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. According to the working of His mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Let me give you the words of Charles Hodge again. He says, There is as great a difference between our present and former condition as between Christ in the tomb and Christ now at the right hand of God. There is as great a difference between our life presently as being justified in the sight of God and formerly as being an object of His wrath as there is now between Christ in the tomb and Christ at the right hand of God. That's the difference. The conversion of a soul is more wonderful than the resurrection from the dead. And you remember Luke 16, we heard... This weekend, a message concerning Luke 16. Do you remember what the rich man was wanting Father Abraham to do? Send someone from the dead to my brothers to prove to them that all of this is real. What did he say? They, They have Moses. Let them hear them. Resurrection from the dead 
though Jesus Christ is said to be the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead, he was not the first to be raised from the dead. He was the preeminent one who had been raised from the dead. He himself had raised Lazarus from the dead. Even in the Old Testament, there were those who had been raised from the dead. And so when we read this, we have to understand Jesus' resurrection is more than just about a dead body coming to life. Children, hear me. Jesus' resurrection is more than just about his dead body coming back to life. It is that. It is gloriously that. But there are all types and kinds and great truths that lie behind life coming back into his physical body. When we remember especially what had placed him in that tomb, it wasn't just that his heart ceased to beat. His heart did cease to beat. It wasn't just that his life's blood was spilt. His blood was spilled. But it was the reason that those things had happened. The reason that he had willingly given himself to those things. That's what makes the resurrection of Jesus Christ such a great and astounding Miracle. That's why we call it the cardinal doctrine of Christianity. When Christ died, He died to sin. He died in your place and He died in mine. Being made sin by His Father. You can think of it in this way. When Christ died, He absorbed the full penalty of what you and I deserved. When Christ died, full payment was made to God to ransom us out of our sin. When Christ died, the wrath of God was removed. When Christ died, justice was propitiated. But we have to add this to make any of those statements true. It was Christ's death and His resurrection. We read this morning out of 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is empty, our faith is empty, we're most pitiable among men. So while Christ died for all of these things, his resurrection was the vindication of all of these things. He triumphed over the grave. He triumphed over the power of sin. He triumphed over the power of Satan. He triumphed over the power of the grave. He was vindicated fully. The death that he died so willingly... His Father raised Him back to life. And we sing all of these great hymns and songs about His resurrection and what it means. I want to point you to just a handful of verses. We could spend all morning doing this, but just a handful of verses where the resurrection is proved to be central to Christianity. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we've read some verses from there. I want to read a few more. 
These, these are the verses we began our service with. Let's just read verse 14. If Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty. Your faith is empty. Skip back a little bit in your Bible to the book of Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. We know these verses so well, but look at verse 9. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, you will be saved. And you might say, well, brother, you skipped over something. I did. Intentionally to bring out the importance of it. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And keep going backwards in Romans, back to chapter 4. Look at verse 24. Just look at verse 25. Nope, we've got to look at verse 24 too, sorry. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, but was raised because of our justification. There is no Christianity, there is no salvation, there is no hope of his calling, there is no exceeding riches of his inheritance in the saints, there is no spiritual eye to be enlightened if there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so back to what Paul is saying here in verse 19 of Ephesians 1. He's making the correlation of, of the, the great expression of God's power in raising the spiritual dead, and he's saying it is just like, it is just like when God raised Christ from the dead. That would be enough. We could leave here and contemplate for the rest of our lives what Paul means by that, but that's not all that he has said here. He says that, that God has done two things for Christ. And both of them equate to His working in us to raise us from the spiritual death that we were ensnared in. Look at verse 20. Which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. That's the first thing. The second is, and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places. After Jesus was resurrected, after some time, he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1. And then the scripture tells us that he was seated, or we refer to this as his session. He was seated at the right hand of God. Signifying that this great mission of redemption that he had been dispatched on was complete. It was finished. Isn't that what Jesus said at Calvary? It is finished, and he breathed his last. 
Then his body was placed into a tomb, signifying that he was really dead, that his heart did stop beating, his blood did stop flowing, his physical life had been given up by him. He absorbed the full fury of the wrath of God. But having been raised from the dead, he ascended back into heaven from whence he came and took his seat at the right hand of God in the place of greatest and highest authority. If that was the only thing that Paul said here, that would be astounding, right? If our salvation had been on par with Christ being seated at the right hand of God. But that's only part two of what he said. It was his resurrection and his being seated. Notice the high position of Christ at the right hand of his Father. Far above, in verse 21... Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Here Paul is again trying to find words for what he's trying to express. Christ has been seated far above all of these known powers, these created powers. Far above the highest of the angels in heaven. Michael the archangel pales in comparison to the position that Jesus Christ is now enthroned in in heaven. And every name that is named, if there is a name of power on heaven, in heaven or on earth, Christ is seated far above them. Think of the most powerful and and combine the most powerful names in the world as we know them. Names that represent the greatest military might, the greatest military skill and wisdom. Think of the names that have the most resources available to them, the names that are responsible for all of the technology that we are blessed with and cursed with. Think of all of the names that could be compiled. And the Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is far above any name that could be named. Not only in this age, but in that which is to come. This is the exceeding greatness of the power of God toward you who believe. This is what He has done for you. This is what He has done for me. Just as he raised Christ from the dead, he raised you and he raised me from the dead. It takes the greatest expression of God's power to make a Christian. But here we sit. Little trophies of his grace everywhere, right? Have you ever thought of yourself, Christian, as being a picture or an image of the greatest expression of God's power? That's not very often how we think of ourselves, is it? And I realize in humility and thinking, wanting to think lowly of ourselves, but you can think this because this is what the Scriptures declare God has done. You have been a recipient of the exceeding greatness of the power of God. How should this affect us how should this knowledge affect us Paul is praying 
I'm asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory to give you this type of knowledge, to open your mind fully to it. And so that so much so that you will begin to feel it in your heart, that you would know it in your heart. When this truth comes to rest both in our head and in our heart, how can it not overflow in praise to God? How can it not overflow in, the praise, in praise to the one who has worked so mightily in us? It also affects the way we pray. It affects the way we evangelize. Far too often the point of our evangelism is trying to coerce or to persuade someone to believe. And there is an element of that. But behind that, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to convince people. We should try to convince people. But behind that, back in our prayer closet, before we've gone out, we've prayed, God, would you raise the spiritual dead? By the preaching of the gospel through your word, would you do for them what I can't do for them, what they could not do for themselves, and probably not even what they want at the time? Aren't you thankful that many of our testimonies would include something like this. God arrested you. He took you by surprise. You thought you were strong enough to resist the exceeding greatness of His power. The, the life that you had in the world was just too good, too fun, too rich, too full, supposedly. And you were content to live there. But the mercy of God the grace of God intervened in your life and He made known to you the exceeding greatness of His power so that you could do nothing else, nothing less, but come to Him, cast yourself upon Him, and receive Him. Is that your testimony? The Lord absolutely took you by surprise and, and overtook you arrested you in mercy and love and grace, compassion, kindness. He had been long-suffering with you. He's seen, he has seen all of those acts of sin that we've committed against Him. He's seen us shake our fist in His face. He's heard the words come out of our mouth that take His name in vain. He has seen how we have treated those who have loved us the most, how we have rejected every offer that has been given to us of His grace and mercy, but thank God that there is a point in time to where this truth comes with such power of the Holy Spirit that it is impressed upon your heart and your mind and you are melted before Him. All of that hardness dissipates. All of that rejection goes away. All of the pride seems to have just been drained from the very bottom of your feet and you now understand if He doesn't do this for me, if I do not receive the offer that He is giving to me now, then at a point in time I will be an object throughout all eternity of His great fury and wrath and justice. Children, Sometimes there is a thought 
that will come to you. If I become a Christian, life will be no fun. Maybe even some of you adults think that. If I become a Christian, all the fun in life will be gone. I can't do this anymore, and I can't do that anymore. Let me tell you something. When you become a Christian, you don't want to do those things anymore. Because you have a new heart. You have new desires. Your desire now is not to go have fun and blaspheme in the world. Your desire now is to live into the glory of Christ. And you say, well, I know nothing of that desire now. Well, you don't. But by mercy, you will. When you become a Christian, when the Spirit of God fills your heart and your life and shows you who Jesus is, and He begins to produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life, everything else pales in comparison. The things of earth grow strangely dim. Some of us in the room could testify the very things that brought us the greatest joy, the things that we lived for, the things that we woke up in the morning that we couldn't wait to put our hand to, couldn't wait to put our mind to, those very things, like Paul says, we now count them as dung. And it's only owing to the grace of God in our life. So let me read this verse again as I close. Paul is praying that you would know the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. Would you pray this for yourself? Would you pray this for me? I'll pray it for you. That the Lord would show us these things and make us know. Make us know them. You pray with me. Our Father, we come before you. Lord, our hearts are filled with gratitude. Our hearts are full of thanksgiving. As we contemplate and think about the exceeding greatness of your power that has been operative in our lives. Lord, you've done for us what we couldn't do. In many cases, what we didn't want to be done. That which we weren't looking for, you gave. What we didn't even know we had, we had lost, you found. Lord, we're thankful. We're humbled. Lord, we desire that you would do it again. That you would raise spiritual dead around us, of our children, of our siblings, our spouses, our parents, our co-workers, those that we love the most, those that we hardly know, Lord, we pray that you in grace and mercy would bring them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that our Lord and Savior has been raised from the dead. We're thankful that he right now
is seated at your right hand in heavenly places. And he sits there far above all power, dominion, and authority. We look forward to that time when we will fully realize the hope of his calling and the glory of the inheritance of the riches that are to be ours as his saints. We pray and ask these things in his name. Amen.